Hi, and welcome to Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about the 80s. But depending on your vintage and circumstances, maybe not your 80s. So rather than the big hair, leg warmers, yacht rock or E.T., we're talking about the currents below those things. The darker music and the DIY culture that formed one of the most innovative youth waves of the late 20th century. Like all such, it kicked against the mainstream until it weakened and got absorbed. Until that happened, a lot of other things did, and they are still worth talking about. Glenn's already told us about Perth at the turn of the decade, and now I'm up. So we're travelling east and then north, to the town of DIY gigs, illegal demonstrations, cops and ministers of everything. Yep, big city itself, Brisbane, the one that I found and lived in. If you were there, your memories might vary. It all began when Glenn came over and said, So Peter, describe your tribe. Right. I think the first thing to say is that I'm not from Brisbane. I'm from Townsville, which is a provincial city, very sort of big uh, industrial port and an army town. I went down to Brisbane to do uni and that I didn't get there until 1980. Have you seen the John Carpenter film, They Live? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. That was, that was made about Reaganomics. You remember this? Well, I do very well because uh, Slavoj Žižek actually oh, uh, uses yeah. um, They Live as part of his film, I think, uh, A Perfect Guide to Ideology. Uh-huh. Uh, Why don't you describe that for a... So well, you know, so for example, uh, you have a character, I think he finds the glasses out of a... Um, a garbage bin, mm-hmm. and uh, he looks at an advertising billboard, and the advertising billboard has an image of a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. He puts the glasses on, and it, it, and the billboard transforms to consume more. That's right. So that's the basic conceit of, of the yeah. film. And the authority figures uh, look have these sort of hideous, sort of alien monster faces. Correct. Yeah. Um, which you don't see if you don't have the glasses on. Now that's kind of how we felt for not being mainstream for not being a, a flares-wearing thing. It wasn't just because flares were passé, etc. but that was kind of the silent mob. That was the great big unthinking yes to the oppression. If you wanted to make, to express your opposition to the culture, you, one of the ways of doing it was by being having this sort of alternative look, the short hair, rather than the, the grown-out long hair or um, the drainpipe jeans rather than the, the flares, whatever. All of that was important, but it also singled you out. Oh, it singled you out. There was that sense. It wasn't, didn't always translate into physical violence, but the hatred was the kind of thing that really bonded what scene there was. And it's not something you necessarily talked about. You didn't avoid it in conversation, but you just thought, okay, we're all good here. Like in the white shares, oh, everyone's got like dyed red hair. That's fine. You know, everyone's like right. hair's a little spiky or, yeah. you know, everyone looks, you know, like Bella Lugosi or something like that. But if tribalism there was, that's what it was based on. It was based on um, a visible dissension. We make it bright in the Sunshine State. We made the state the greatest in the land. Our hard work together had in hand. And everything we've done was fashioned in the sun. To proudly wear the maiden wings and brand. 
Department of Industrial Development, key number DCID 18, duration by 62nd, record 24th the 4th, 1980, replaced to be advised, NCS Niles director is Bob McLean. What you're talking about is a monoculture, and I think it might be hard for younger people to appreciate just how things were back in the 80s yeah. in terms of the concentration of media or the lack of access to alternative media, mm -hmm. because we all watched Countdown, which was fantastic in many yeah, ways, but yeah. you could be assured that the whole country at six o'clock on a Sunday evening were watching the same show. Uh, we were probably watching the same movies on television. Mm. There wasn't a great sense of diversity That's in terms true. of uh, newspapers. Press ownership was like sewn up. I don't think things are that different. But no, what true. is significantly different today is that we have the internet. Mm -hmm. So a thousand flowers or a thousand weeds bloom. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to express yourself. But what you're talking about is the extent to which the culture itself was incredibly restricted. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you're talking about the way in which this alternative music culture functioned as some kind of counterpoint or alternative to that monoculture. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we didn't, you know, so, you know, there were fanzines and there yes. were um, bands playing in venues that uh, were probably not on the map of um, the big rock bands mm -hmm. that are off the day. Is that the kind of thing you're yeah, talking it is, about? it is. The, um, <clears throat> I, as soon as I kind of plugged into that, the notion of uh, the, the sense that if you weren't part of that, that kind of unquestioning culture, the people who didn't have the sunglasses, in other words, we were the ones who felt that we did. That's, that's a big sort of claim to make on yourself, but it, you kind of had to because you felt like you were sort of being kind of ghetto-wise by the fact that you weren't part and you weren't welcome to be part because you had these other um, <clears throat> ideas. But we didn't want to be part of that. And that's one of the worst crimes you can, you can commit culturally when it is a monoculture. Or you're wearing sort of op-shop clothes, very di distinctly op-shop, old black suits and things like that. Um, and when there's like a few of you, then you become this sort of threatening-looking thing. There was, at the centre of this, there was Triple Z, which was a student subscriber FM station. Sheer ugliness, 25 minutes to 11 o'clock, the sweetest one, a song from Genya Ravan. And uh, if, if you own a bank card, here's some interesting news for you. Uh, concerning knowledge about you in the United States just because you own a bank card. There's going to be a massive computer link-up where the fi financial and private details of millions of bank card-owning Australians will be available in the United States to people who have access to a certain computer. Triple Z's annual fundraising radiothon, this weekend. Support public radio. Contribute this weekend to our annual radiothon appeal and help keep new stereo music, independent news and information on the air. Triple Z, listener-supported radio, 102.1 FM. We'll even take small change. So that's important because when we talk about a homogeneous culture or monoculture, mm. it's important to recognise that there were these undercurrents. The advent of community radio, for example, mm. provided an alternative voice, yeah. if you like. And mm -hmm. I guess what you're saying is that through fashion and through 
things like triple Z, it was possible to resist or to at least express dissent against Joe's regime. Yeah. So I guess that brings me on to uh, another question I have about the Brisbane scene, because a music scene, it doesn't exist in isolation from other parts of the culture. Mm. And so you've already mentioned things like Triple Z, certain magazines that shaped the scene somehow. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like um, what was the role of things like, you know, radio stations, record shops, uh, magazines? The, I guess, flagship alternative record shop was called Rocking Horse. And that I think was on Adelaide Street in the CBD. And that's where you went to get your import records. If you wanted something, uh, I don't know, Lee Scratch Perry or The Fall or something like that, you would have to go to Rocking Horse or maybe Skinny's, which is a little later. Maybe you could find it secondhand at a place like, like the Record Market, which was cheap. So you could get an LP in reasonably good condition, but who cares when you're paying 50 cents for it? Tell me perhaps a little bit more about like, Triple Z and, mm-hmm. and the way in which the music of that time uh, and the bands associated with that scene responded to the political milieu. Okay. Uh, well, the good thing about Triple Z is that it, was, it wasn't difficult to put, on, put it on for an hour and find something you liked, as well as all the alternative music that was coming out of uh, mainly the UK and other parts of Australia. Triple Z was also really, really backed to the hilt the alternative music scene such as it was in Brisbane. Really, you sent your demo, and if it, if it wasn't a cover band, they would probably play it at some point, and you might even get an interview out of it simply because you were doing that. When you listen to Triple Z, and this is everyone from school kids to university students to anyone else who was so inclined, you felt you were listening to Friends, which was so important. The mainstream media were pretty much like anywhere else in Australia except... Maybe this was our paranoia, or maybe it was true. We saw all of that as being the voice of George Street, of Parliament, of the National Party, of the Archie Peterson. Triple Z and the music that Triple Z played functioned as a point which people could rally around. It, it brings into being some kind of counterculture, if you like. While there were certainly analogues where I was living in Perth, we had... Um, 6UVS-FM, which played a lot of local alternative music, we experienced a level of political dissatisfaction with the Liberal Party led by Sir Charles Court. Mm. Well, we knew about here. Yeah. Uh, So it it wasn't as though we were were living in some kind of um, socialist utopia, far from it. But listening to you speak, I certainly, of the opinion that there was something very distinctive that was happening in Brisbane politically that we really didn't have much of a sense of. Mm -hmm. You know, as I said, beyond the comic um, missives from the likes of uh, Jerry Connolly. Well, we can have have an election. No, I didn't ask you that. I said, is it democratic not to recall parliament? Yes, of course, we we can operate legally, effectively. I know. Is it democratic? Yes, it is democratic. Completely democratic. Absolutely democratic. Politics was the National Party. It was a coalition up until about 1980, and then, terrifyingly, the Joe Bielke-Peterson government ruled in its own right, always a minority government, but the gerrymander saw to it that that was dealt with. 
People in Queensland of my vintage, so that the ones who were in their teens when 1980 came around or early 20s, they would have been aware that the government was this guy called Joe Bjelke Peterson and um, other uh, figures who increasingly took on the appearance of somewhere between like Politburo duels and gangsters. The sense that there was going to be no hope, no break in this unless all out revolution. It wasn't just a hard right government. It was a government that outlawed street marches. That was extremely oppressive to the indigenous population. That was in the pockets of the major mining companies and multinationals and largely uh, served those by making sure that there was as little dissent as possible in the society. Uh, that expression of opposition was itself almost illegal. That sense of, of futility of fighting, and the, the only real way you could do that is, is by, yeah, turning up to the street marches whether they were legal or not, and if you were so inclined, you'd certainly go to the, the, the kind of parties with people who are, um, you know, gatherings of people who fought like-mindedly, um, or you go to the kind of gigs that were part of that uh, milieu as well, which were decided, we'll get onto this in a moment, were decidedly anti-conventional. And what did you tune into? What was it that attracted you to the music, to that particular subculture? Well, the fact that it wasn't mainstream, that a lot of it I found was DIY. In fact, a lot of the, the gigs he went to weren't at CBD pubs, but in well, either at parties or in halls or venues that were had other purposes, other primary purposes like the blind hall or the, the heaper hall. There were some pubs. Also, it's important to note that these the, the scene such as it was, if you think of the scene as a number of gigs, they weren't in one centre. There wasn't a district like there was in Melbourne. The, you've seen those documentaries where they talk about the Fitzroy sound or the Fitz and Kilda sound. Right. And stuff. Nothing like that existed. Uh, there was certainly that kind of thing in Sydney where people could move into the inner city. It didn't have the same cachet in Brisbane. That changed. A lot of them didn't have a, a, a long uh, life as venues. So what about the, the music itself? So okay. what, who were the bands that made an impact politically when you, you first became aware of Triple um, Z? Okay, well, there's a, there's a bit to unravel, but I'll say it this way. There were a lot of occasions where turning up and playing like fundraisers for various things, let's say you attach yourself to a cause, rather than try to politicise your music, like directly through the lyrics like Red Gum did or Midnight Oil did, all power to them, but um, that wasn't what a lot of people did. I think more so it was the like the break with convention that was happening in other scenes in the world where your music didn't sound like like a cover band. So the way you dressed was was similar to the way you sounded. And the way you sounded was going to be improvised from you know whatever you, you could find, like music of found objects, as well as a lot of guitar rock, sure. But even then, it had less of a conventionality to it. So that's the way it was it was done, and that further goes towards the, um, the notion which, which held out quite a lot, that it was better to do it this way because as soon as you get rock, as soon as you get sort of rockist, not just the guitar solos but the, the sort of the us and them with the stage between us, that's where you lose out. That's where you start buying your lotto tickets and going to the footy and things like that. So you're saying that uh, 
use the term rockist. Mm. So that refers to what exactly? It refers to the mainstream mainly, but it also was kind of a cautionary term against a kind of a, a creep back, uh, particularly led in, I think, in Sydney, of rock bands, like very conventional rock bands, but who had a kind of a little cachet because they had come from punk scenes or whatever. The sense that I got in Brisbane going to gigs um, and seeing like people with drum machines and didgeridoos, you know, and, and like cassette players as, as tape loop machines and things like that. I shouldn't give the impression that that's all that was happening. But to get up on stage and be like would-be rock stars was kind of buying in to a culture that we opposed. So to be rockist was to buy into frontman as star, mm. the whole as the celebrity aspect of yeah. being in a band, the distinction between players and audience. Yeah. There was a, a, a more of a democratic ethos that tried to break down that um, distinction. Well, the between old norm. The go-betweens weren't the kind of when I got there. I think they'd flown the coop, however, temporarily. But they, they wasn't the, even that central sort of figure. And even they were not Grant McLennan and the go-betweens. It was uh, a band, very uh, self-consciously non-star-like. So when you listen to the music, that is apparent, is it not, the, the mm, fact that they're playing with odd song structures, mm-hmm. um, time signatures. Mm-hmm. One of the ways, one of the most effective ways of being rebellious, is not oppositional, is to ignore that idea of getting up in the barricades and, you know, doing the whole midnight oil, fist yeah, pumping kind the of... The sloganeering yeah, approach yeah, to that, that just, political dissent. Yeah. It seemed to make it too easy. It seemed to make yourself too much of a target. If you, if, if you could befuddle them, you know, if you could confound them by, uh, by telling them you didn't want to be part of it.
demonstration in the square. Big city. The boys in blue are everywhere. Big city. See the blacks in the park. Big city. Hear the door slam, hear the dogs bark. Big city. They're keeping the city safe after dark. Big city. The Minister for Corruption's working late. Big city. What's the piece of the action in race, eh? No SP here, he's ringing in the state. Big City. The blacks at our coon have to go. Big City. Keep big business on the go. Big City. While Joe gets shares in Kamalco. Big City. Who was the bad man? Who was the hit man? Big City. Who were the front men? Who were the big men? Big City. In the national scam. Uh, Pig City, um, before that Razor Task Force, which is like directly about the undercover uh, cops. But the first one was uh, that we listened to was from 1979. It was called Cigarettes and Alcohol by The Leftovers. And that on the surface of it just seems like a song about having fun and going out. But it's really a song about how difficult it was to do that. And how Flaunting that was in itself an act of dissent of some kind. I mean, they didn't think, they didn't write treatises about this. They wrote little tough rock songs about it. And that was the point. It wasn't like people fist pumping the air when they were being played, in, you know, like at a gig or something like that. It wasn't Midnight Oil, but it was, um, it was a, a, definitely a sense of community as opposed to the one that was, they were surrounded by. The, the people who went to the marches rather than the people who wanted the marches to stop. All of that is pretty much, it, it, it's hard to distinguish the two things, the politics and the act of trying to uh, enjoy yourself even um, outside of that mainstream prescription. The other thing that struck me about it is the way in which the sound is not uh, so different to you know, some of the Perth bands mm. around the same time. Mm. Um, you know, the mannequins, the victims, there, there seemed to be that very British punkish yeah, aesthetic, yeah. you know. Although with Pig City, oh, what well, a bizarre, a <laughs> you know, the, the sax and then the, the Delta yeah. Blues uh, slide guitar coming in and then, yeah. you know. I don't know much about the, um, the circumstances of that one. I do have a strong sense that it was pretty much led by... Um, Slightly older triple Z figures. So when when did the the scene kind of like morph into that? What is the term you know to stripped? Oh, striped sunlight. Striped sunlight sound. Yeah. What's that about? That's Forster or McLennan coming up with this because that's what they were like. You you read uh, Forster's book? Yeah. Grant and I. Yeah. Yes. Great Uh, book. It is a great book, and he's a good writer, and I think he's describing very accurately the kind of affectation, and gleefully the kind of affectation. They would that would 
drive them to say, oh, striped sunlight sound, I've got to put that into an interview. He <laughs> describes that, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, the go-betweens are really important as a kind of a style base, although not many people were around to admit it, because in a way, because we were so provincial and we were so ignored by the rest of the nation, we kind of felt a little cooler, because that... The the necacube version of that of being obscure is to is to be is to think of yourself as being you know obscu- exclusive, you know oh they don't know about us because we're far too <laughs> that was really yeah. a big thing I mean people wouldn't necessarily articulate that but it was there it was that sound it was sound it was the the ethos I mean I always imagined it was um, it had less to do with music and more to do with the atmosphere mm-hmm. surrounding the music you yeah. know the fact that I don't know. Every time I've been up to Brisbane, it's been as hot as hell. And and that's another uh, way in which it resonates with my experience of Perth. But the shades are always drawn. You know, so it's like that kind of like sunlight, like streaming in. Yeah. Which is creating, I don't know, what, Uh, a dreamy... Yeah, so it... it, I I don't know what that... It's a nice phrase, but um, whether that describes an ethos or a particular sonic palette, I don't know.
I really enjoyed that song. It's, to me, it sounded like, you know, a band playing at the very edge of their musical capabilities, being quite ambitious in terms of what they were trying to do with the timing of the song, the stops. Um, and there's something really um, intriguing about that ambition to you know, be spiky, be quirky, mm -hmm. uh, which I really enjoyed. I've never heard that track before. And the other thing that I really enjoyed about that track was you could hear the what would later, I think, become the sort of trademark pop sensibility of the band. Yeah. Uh, kind of like trying to break its way through. It's well, a really, it's a fascinating track in the, that sense. There's the, it's not the chorus, it's like it's near the chorus because there isn't really a chorus in the song. They don't get to the title until the last line. But, and you can break his heart. And then there's one of them. The other one is doing the break his heart. Uh, that is really an arrangement idea. Yeah. It's, yeah. And the entire thing is an arrangement idea. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There's a real ambition in terms of like arranging a song rather and, than, you know, like playing within your limitations. Like a band, like say the Ramones, figured that, well, we can play three chords competently. Mm -hmm. That's all we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, you can hear that there was something... Um, a, a, a greater degree of um, ambition with the go-betweens. That's that's well pointed out, I think, because ambition is what they were becoming about. Like if you listen to something like Lee Remick, it is self-consciously naive. It's like the Archies with a bit who've read Camus or something like that. People say, um, which is the next single they brought out, and I think I'm able little, is the same kind of thing. It, it, it's not bubblegum, you wouldn't call it, you wouldn't say it sounded like the Archies, but it, it wants to do a little bit more with that, the kind of atmosphere, the air of that kind of sound, with the organ-driven kind of thing. Also, the guitar solo I like in uh, Stop Before You Said, because it, it sounds like it's thought about. It sounds like they've thought every note. It's not an improvised guitar solo. It's all new melodic material. Yeah. The, he's not just replaying the vocal melody or the, the verse or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a different bit where the, the song, you wouldn't actually say it like breaks free, but it, it changes. So you go through a different phase. That is the kind of thing you're talking about, where yeah. the ambition means that the song has discernibly different parts. It has a drama to it. Yeah. It has a flow. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that is brought to my mind, because um, I remember hearing Robert Foster, I thought this was the origin of the phrase, when he was talking on Triple Z back in the early 80s, after they'd come back from Scotland, and he mentioned the striped sunlight sound. And I thought, oh, wow, well, he just came up with, no, he didn't. They were, you know, they probably had like an exercise book full of the dappled, you know, <laughs> yeah. the sunlight burn or something like that. Oh, no, 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 I've got it. Yeah. Um, so it, and I, I think it's, it's very Brisbane to do that, to sort of go, okay, um, no one's going to give us our style. We're not going to take it off the shelf from Manchester or somewhere like that because there's nothing like that in, in what we just heard or early go-betweens. The other song that strikes me as, as having a striped sunlight sound is probably Cattle and Cain, probably one of their most famous pieces, which you would be familiar with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is a brilliant piece of work. I'm not sure whether it was a hit, but it was certainly something that I... I remember seeing the film clip mm. and being immediately struck by just what an incredible song that was.
kind of moved on from Brisbane itself. There, there, there's gigs they played that I saw um, in Brisbane at the time, but and they were kind of uh, in that sense like royalty. Because we didn't have the sense to think of it. We had Ed Cooper who would come back and play Laughing Clown shows, but the go-betweens did that after the Saints. They did it in the wake of the Saints with something their own. So they didn't sound like the Saints. Like a, every band in Liverpool would have sounded like the Beatles in a, a five-year radius. Um, there wasn't that, now that I think of it. I mean, we heard of a couple of like guitar punk bands that, that weren't as good as Saints songs, but they you know, weren't as well-crafted. But they were definitely in the wake of that. And they were definitely in the same sort of musical ethos. The, the thing I think that happened with the go-betweens is, is that they stayed together and they had to make a living out of what they, what they did. So I have no problem with that. It's just in that scene. I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, um, a healthy attitude. And I don't think it's sustainable because what you get then is it's, it wasn't even like the collectives that you heard about in the, the north of England like in Hull, those places, like Throbbing Gristle, those sorts of things. It was disparate people who kind of, or disparate projects of people who kind of knew each other, went to the same parties, but there wasn't a movement as such. But there was that sense of don't try to be a rock star, don't try to rise above it, that's contemptible. And the go-betweens didn't stick around. I mean, they, they, they played a fair bit uh, on return sort of journeys, but they moved to Sydney you know, eventually, which again is, is, gives them greater opportunities. They called it... Um, Records, uh, record companies, a big fan, uh, with some success and, and chase the sort of hit singles. You can hear them. And, and as you're saying, like with McLennan and Forster, they write very different songs all the way through it. They, they sound almost identical. Their voices sound almost identical. Um, but you can hear the difference who wrote the song by how you know, difficult, difficult as in non-agreeable it is. And those ones aren't the Gwen McLennan songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, to my ear anyway, he always seemed to have perhaps a, a greater melodic yeah definitely uh, facility and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw the go-betweens in the late 80s in Perth and they were incredibly entertaining mm. tuneful yeah theatrical mm-hmm. Robert Forster came on in a dress oh, which yeah, is yeah. like a very memorable part of uh, the mm. event that I saw because it's uh, about 10 foot tall isn't yes it? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just wondering was do you feel that these bands were eventually seduced by conventional rock and roll ethos, that um, they sought success? I know that Robert Forster in his book Grant and I Mm -hmm. talks about the extent to which Grant McLennan was chasing stardom to a greater extent than he was. Uh, And there was this desire. This was certainly my perception of what was happening with the Triffids, who we spoke okay. about in the last the uh, podcast, there was a level of ambition there where they wanted to make it. They wanted, yeah. I mean, the Triffids ended up being signed to Island Records. Mm-hmm. They were desperately trying to get a hit because they wanted their music to be in the top 40. Now, that sits very uncomfortably with the anti rockist stance mm-hmm. that you've been talking about. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about like how all of this like plays out um, towards the end of the decade, maybe. Okay. The only person who, in my recollection, who changed that formula was then Greg Perkins. Tex Perkins, as we no, know him today. He's called, yeah, he, that came a little later, and that, that's, it's poignant how that came up. Okay, he came across as a real, like, 
as the personality of the band he was in, even though they were originally just called the Dum Dums. It was really takes deadly and the Dum Dums, which is just like his stage persona. But like he, he looked a little like Lux Interior from the Cramps. He had this like Frankenstein hair and he wore this sort of suit jackets, which made him look like a used car salesman. And he had a voice like Johnny Cash, deep, real, genuine, deep voice. And he was funny and he had a lot of charm. And he used to really engage with the audience in a way that wasn't like a cabaret band, even though he was kind of doing all of this with a comic edge. He kind of had to do that because the, the tall poppyism in Brisbane at that time would have just thrown him off, you know, torn, torn him apart. So he had to come across as like a joke. But he delivered with the other things. Like he, he really could sing a Johnny Cash song and make it sound good. So there was real sort of value in there which wasn't just his. I mean, there were other band members and they were good musicians and they had good ideas, good musical ideas. But that wasn't what was conveyed to the audience. The, the audience came to see this guy do a shtick. Yeah. But he couldn't do anything further with that until he went to Sydney where that kind of stuff is it's not just sort of like accepted but encouraged. So he had to leave Brisbane yeah, to definitely. find his feet as a Most definitely. musician. No one else was, would be doing that. If, if You could have a bit of banter, maybe you could have a little joke or two because there was this, this really strong sense of you can't be different from us. It's, we're already different from the rest of these aliens that we can see with our sunglasses. The scene was very eclectic and it, it sounds like from what you've said, you know, starting off with those sort of very punky sounding um, bands that we've heard, the 80s in Brisbane seemed to be able to accommodate a lot of different styles. Yeah. So to say, well, there is this Brisbane sound, well, I don't know, is, is, that a, is that a fair comment to say that actually... Yeah, it, it is. It was, it was far more eclectic than a lot of people want to remember. Uh, you talk about a Brisbane sound and people of my vintage might think of bands who affected a, a very pared back sparseness. But I did get the idea that there was um, a kind of a divide that was happening towards the mid-80s. I was there till 85. Where that was not so much triumphant, like the, the rockers thing was not so much triumphant, but, but just there. Tolerated is the wrong word as well. Because it had its audience. It probably had a bigger audience than the, the stuff that was like electronic. And by electronic, I, I'm including the, the bands that played like tape loops and, and noise scapes and things like that, like Pork. They were there as well. And there was that sort of um, the uh, propaganda by Deed, Throbbing Gristle style uh, of that in there as well. That was, that was pretty much an undercurrent. That was also a kind of statement to make, that you weren't writing songs, you were creating... Events. Yeah.
So tell me a bit about uh, pork. Okay. Um, pork were made of uh, generally like a, a core of about four people. And they're a mix of noisy electronics, early versions of sampling done with things like a um, like real physical tape loops that they spliced themselves. You wouldn't call them a, an art movement. They had a lot of self-consciously self-conscious comedy about themselves. It wasn't overly solemn thing. But they were serious about the sounds that they came out with, and they were serious about the shows. Often they would have a backdrop if they could uh, organise it, where they would have uh, projections behind them, but those would be photos from autopsies, um, like degloved penises or scalped heads and things like that. Very hard to look at. Uh, and sometimes very hard to listen to. Uh, what I liked about them was that they they weren't buying into what I saw. This is to give you an idea of the timeline. This is, I guess, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, maybe. Um, they dissipated into different um, acts as well. He Dark Age was one of them. A lot of them are still going uh, and still doing very similar th things. They're also sort of um, revisiting their legacy catalogue and sort of bringing that out, but. They're definitely representative of a whole sort of a strain of uh, endeavour. I think going out in Brisbane in the early 80s, it, it, it changed from a scene into just something that happened, I think. I don't know quite what that distinction means. It wasn't, there wasn't a cohesion about it, especially with what you pointed out with the, about the diversity of things. So once you got what we perceived as like um, long-haired yobbers sort of wearing slightly cooler clothes, playing um, Detroit-style rock songs, which we didn't want anything to do with, but we were getting outnumbered. I say we in a very loose, loosely sense of the people who um, were more sympathetic to something like Pork than, uh, than Radio Birdman or that kind of thing. And I think the... Uh, the sense of being approaching music toward it being unconventional was still pretty strong. But I think, like a lot of things, that, that can only go so far before it starts imploding. And I think that's probably what happened very slowly towards the mid-80s. You probably got a lot less of that sort of stuff and maybe even some professionalism in attitude creeping in to the live scene. That's when I, I stopped going because I, I stopped getting interested in a lot of these bands. Right. Who yeah. sounded a little more... Well, it was hard to... like Even like Triple Z were embracing these bands largely because they actually had a, a point to embrace them. You know, they, they were successful in getting followings and audiences. That hadn't really happened a lot. There was a sense that it was changing into something more conventional. By conventional, I mean the kind of stuff you'd hear on the radio. So do you think that it would be fair to say that this alternative music scene played a role in changing things in Queensland and perhaps contributing to dissatisfaction with the Bjelke Peterson government? That would be, the last bit would be the one. Um, school kids listening to Triple Z. The insistence on like a, an alternative political view that's, that organs like Triple Z zines, going to the, the alternative record shops, that would have been instrumental in recruiting people to the idea that they don't have to just accept it. I think that was true. That's the long-term thing. So that the generation that came after the one I'm talking about, after mine, 
would have started to feel that this is not inevitable, this is not necessary. So maybe that, that's a good point to bring things to a, uh, a conclusion. Uh, if we could now just perhaps talk a little bit about the legacy of that scene, the way... the One thing I think is interesting, and I'm not sure whether this is because of some inherent quality of the music that was produced in that era, or whether it's a case of the people who participated in that culture now occupy positions in, um, I don't know, the media, academia, Mm -hmm. and when they reflect, they tend to perhaps inflate the significance of those Mm -hmm. bands. Mm -hmm. There's always that aspect to it. But it seems to me, with that caveat, uh, that the music produced by the so-called alternative bands in Australia in the 1980s has been more durable than you know, the mainstream, mm. Ozcrawl, uh, Mondo Rock, yeah, uh, Cold Chisel, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have their fans, mm. and I'm not saying there's no merit to that, of absolutely. Yeah. But it seems that what is remembered, and I, you know, it's the Saints, the Go-Betweens, mm. the Triffids, mm-hmm. the Scientists. Birthday Party. Birthday Party, of course. Beasts of Bourbon, Cruel Sea, all of that stuff yeah. seems to still be played and it seems to have accrued a welter of positive critical commentary. In cases where uh, you get musicians expressing difference equals dissent, that kind of thing is going to loom largest. Angry scenes at Queensland University today after the Students' Union closed down radio station 4ZZZ. Staff and supporters of the Radical FM station grouped outside the campus studio to protest the closure, alleging harassment by the union. The union served an eviction notice early today, claiming the studio was a fire and health risk. Police were called when Triple Z supporters... In the meantime, stormed the, the only good news for 4 Z is an increased audience share of curious listeners. We've survived. The problem of any scene whose obscurity is as persistent as Brisbane's is that everyone who was there thinks they own it. Add that to the experience of the political gravity, the first-hand accounts of arrests and assaults and the anti-rights lawmaking, and you've got the hazardous territory of a kind of copyrightable grievance. People were physically and emotionally injured during the worst of those times, and we should acknowledge their courage and endurance. Those aren't the only stories, but they are the ones that will persist. We resisted by being different in an affluence ruled by Puritans with pepper spray. The saying went, Queenslanders are different. You can unravel that one how you want. And even I, who didn't come from Brisbane, only lived there for five years and now have lived most of my life away from it, still hold those memories close, however rotten they were, as though lightening the grip would allow them to slip away forever, and that feels bad. (laughs) I'll close by remembering something else. Something that persisted blithely through all our ridicule of it, meaning it won. BTQ7, Channel 7, the TV station. Closed transmission every night, didn't go for 24 hours then. Every night for a few years running with a song that went like this. Love you, Brisbane. Someone had to. We just didn't get at the time that that would become our job.
five nights in a row The cops drive past but they move slow A million people staying low With mangoes right Junk on the radio Just take a look And you will know I start to feel I'm being used In a scheme that's been hidden From the public view Scheme that's been hidden from the public view. 